We, uh, we're in pretty deep water now out in our series on boundaries, and, and if you haven't figured it out by now, in fact, we we're joking about, about this at the, our staff meeting this year, I could talk about boundaries for the rest of the year. They are that important, and they're that biblical a concept. You'll see that again uh, in, in our talk this morning. If you were here last week, Mike DeLuca, who both did this morning's announcements and then did half of the video announcements... Um, Mike helped us make a pretty important turn in our discussion on boundaries. Here's what we know. Boundaries are biblical. God used them himself. God is a God of boundaries. He used them in creation. And, and why? Because God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of order. And God uses boundaries to bring order out of chaos. That is simply put the purpose of boundaries. Remember the pictures, maybe, of my neighbor's fence and my fence and what we refer to as the DMZ in the middle. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's, that's week one and week two in the series. And then we looked at how boundaries can help us bring order out of chaos in our chaotic, our dysfunctional relationships. We saw that God uses boundaries to bring order in the relationship we have with him, and we are to take boundaries and because we're made in the image of God, use those boundaries, right, to create order out of chaos in, in our relationships, right? There was some cool stuff I think we went through there on how God's relationships with us are bounded by two principles. That first is that relationship between responsibility and access. That's always been true. It's true today. It'll be true into eternity. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected, you have been faithful and trustworthy over a little. I will, in the kingdom to come, put you in charge of much. The second principle, which governs boundaries relationally, right, and helps us to establish them, was the relationship between grace and truth. Relationships get chaotic. They get out of control when we err on one side of that line or the other. Now, what Mike was trying to do last week, and I think he did a very good job of, was to, to ask a pretty profound question. If boundaries are so good and so godly, then why do we struggle with them so much? I have my old faithful here. Lift with the back, they say, because this is a heavy fence. We've been putting this up week after week to help us get a visual of what the purpose of a boundary is, how they work. But one of the things I realized the first week I put this thing up was that we don't like boundaries. I put it up week one, I got emails about the visceral look of putting a boundary up on the stage. People actually wrote on Facebook, I hope that's going to come down. We don't like boundaries. And last week, Mike was trying to get us to understand why it is that we don't like boundaries. I mean, if they're so good and godly, right, why is it that we don't embrace them? Now, that's nothing new, We've been kind of running from boundaries since the Garden of Eden when God created us and gave us one singular boundary. Don't eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and think about it. It was one boundary, and it was essentially this at its heart. Listen, I'm God. I'm the creator, or you're the created. And so here's the boundary. You stay in your yard, right, which was a big yard. You could do anything God said except this one thing. You let me determine what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what brings life and what doesn't. You can have everything else. You can rule over the rest of the garden. We don't like boundaries in our relationships, right, with each other 
Because when, I, when we create boundaries in our relationships, in terms of what's going on over here in your yard, right, in your area, it means I have to cede control of your life and your stuff and, and your, your world. I have, to, I have to cede control of it to you. A boundary in a relationship means that I have to let you be responsible for your life. I can't come and control you. Which sounds simple until we love somebody whose life is out of control and we want to save them. A boundary means coming to the rationalization that I can't save you. A boundary means I start to realize I can't make you do what it is I want you to do. You ever really love somebody and want them to love you back? Boundaries mean that I can't make you love me. Boundaries mean I can't make you spend the holidays at my house. Boundaries believe I can't make you spiritually believe what I spiritually believe or politically line up with what my politics are or philosophically agree on, on tenets of life with me. Boundaries, because you're responsible for your life and I'm responsible for my life, mean I can't keep you from destroying your life or hurting yourself or leaving me. And so one boundary I don't like is, is the, the reason I don't like it is I want to control you. And if you really dig deep, what we're really doing is we're saying, I want to be God of your life. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like to control what happens in your life, your decisions. I, I want to have some impact on your happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of times we do this for the good of the other. We look into that yard and go, it's a mess over there. I can clean it up. I can help. Sometimes we do it for their good. But if we're also truthful, a lot of times we do it for our own good. The other reason we don't like boundaries in relationships is that boundaries remind us of our limitations and our actual lack of control in our own little area. Because if I have to acknowledge that I am not in full control of this whole area myself, right? If I have to acknowledge that, that I can't be God for them and they're, they're in control of the, their own lives and I have to leave them to God, when I get in my own yard, I have to kind of understand that for myself. Even in my own yard, I'm not fully in control. I have to let God be who God demands to be, even in my own yard with my own stuff. I have to not just rely on myself, but I have to trust God. I have to let him be who he demands to be. And God is not, please hear this. I think as Christians, we don't explain this well. God demands to be God in your life, not because he's some kind of narcissist that demands your worshipers dying to control you. It's because God is the creator of your life. His will and desire, he didn't create you to torment you. His, his will and desire for your life is good. Psalm 103, he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we're dust. He knows how we work. And, and so not only do we want to be God for others, so we don't like boundaries placed on us going over there, we want to be God in our, in our own things, in our own lives. We want to control them. We, we want to do for ourselves whatever it is that we want to do. We want to be a God unto ourselves. We want to control our own lives. And I don't like to have boundaries put on my stuff. No shocker here. God, the creator, who knows how we're formed, he's very, very aware of this very, very dangerous desire that we have to control others and to control our own lives. Now, let me ask you a question. Any guesses here on what God uses as his God-ordained tool to curb, train us out of this very dangerous desire? 
I'll give you a hint. It starts with a B, it ends with an S, and it rhymes with foundries. So there you go. Out of the mouths of babes, or in this case, very young ladies. So today we're going to turn away from relationships, and I'm going to look at how God has been using boundaries in other areas of your life, and you're clearly aware of these things. You and I just aren't doing a good job with them. And I'm going to give you a warning up front. How do we feel about boundaries in relationships? We don't like them. How do you think you're going to feel about these boundaries in other areas of your life? You are not going to like them. You'll most likely go, hmm, I don't like that. Right? That's just the way they are. But we need to trust God. The question is, will you trust him who wants to bring order out of chaos? And and we're going to look at two super important areas in your life where I would argue we feel the most chaos. I would say right after relationships, there are two other areas where we get ourselves in the most trouble, where chaos, right, begins to reign and our lives literally get out of control. Those two areas, one and time, money and time. Those are the two areas in our life, right, where we tend to lose control, right, and our lives become super chaotic, which is super interesting, right, in Mendham and Chester, New Jersey. It's almost ironic. I mean, think about it. Here in our communities, we have more money than almost anyone anywhere, right, as a community. We have so much money, the vast majority of us are now paying people to mow our lawns. Now, why do we pay people to mow our lawns? So we can save some time for ourselves. And yet, what is it that we don't seem to have enough of? Money or time. And the problem, is, is, the problem isn't that we don't have time or, or that we don't have enough money. The problem is we have placed very few boundaries on our time and money, right? Don't mess with my calendar. Don't mess with my checkbook. Now, your heavenly Father knows the power that both time and money has in our lives. In fact, boundaries around these two issues You should check this out. It's super interesting. I've been working on this, as you can imagine, for some amount of time. And I don't like it either, just to give you a heads up. Boundaries around these issues are the most prescribed things in the arc of the scripture. I want you to think about it, God, right? When God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, he's led Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God is calling him up onto Mount Sinai. He's he's bringing to himself his own people, and he's going to create this new nation, this new people group, out of this group of slaves, right? And he's setting up for them. What is God handing Moses up on Mount Sinai? Anybody? It begins with a B, and it ends with an S, and it rhymes with foundries. He gives to... Boundaries. (laughs) He gives to Moses... We had one in the garden, now we have 10, right? Sin has, you know, grown a little bit, and so as sin, sin grows, boundaries grows. And he gives Moses not one, but 10 boundaries, right? And one of the big 10 boundaries has to do with your time, what you don't want any bounds on. You know it, and I know it, as the Sabbath. God says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Holy means kind of separate, separated out, used for God's purposes, It should have some significance to it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Which, let's be honest, I mean, you and I know this concept, right? It's kind of built into being 
I mean, alive today, almost in, in every country, but specifically, like, you know, in America, we enjoy our weekends. Sunday, I, I'm old enough to remember blue laws in New Jersey. Does anybody remember the blue laws in New Jersey? Um, giving my age away there, but, you know, you, there were laws in the state of New Jersey that governed that essentially most things, unless, unless they were life critical, had to be closed on Sunday. Some of you go down the beach to Ocean Grove. Ocean Grove used to chain the streets on Sunday, so you couldn't drive your car through the streets, which is kind of funny as Christians. If we can't change a heart, let's chain a street, right? There's a sermon in there, right? But for the Israelites, this people that had been in slavery for hundreds of years, they had for generation after generation, seven days a week, 12 months a year, 365 days a year, they had been making brick after brick after brick after brick. This concept of you're going to stop working one out of seven days was completely mind-blowing. Nobody else, this is going to make his people, church, hear this. This would make his people unique that one day a week, they're just going to stop and say, no, 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 this is reserved to rest. This is reserved for God. This will be holy. Of course, you and I hear this, right? And if you're honest, you think, boy, what a... What a great God we serve. Our God says, hey, take a day off. Which was what you would think Moses and the Israelites would be super excited about, right? We get a day off. I don't think they were. Because when this was given, this boundary, some 3,500 years ago, if you didn't work every day, you didn't eat every day. You don't saran wrap up your meals and freeze them. There's no bird's eye, right? There's no TV dinner to nuke and warm up. The concept of a doggy bag hasn't yet come to be. And so what does our good, good father in heaven do with his people? He's trying to train them on the concept of I want you to stop with your time. It is limited, and I want you to pause, and I want you to give me back one-seventh of that. These people, they're wandering through the desert. They have no crops. They have no farms. They have no land. They're not yet in the promised land flowing with milk and honey. They have nothing but sun and sand. And so God begins to give his people what we've come to know as manna to eat. He provides it for them fresh every morning. Anybody know what manna translates to in English? We, we keep it in the Bible as manna. But if you were to translate it, anybody know what manna means? What is it? <laughs> what is it? which is what the Israelites walked out every morning and said, what is this, right? What is it? It would be described, we don't really know what manna is, but it would be described at, in the scriptures later, right? God would tell them to eat it, but it would be described as bread from heaven, and that quote, it was like wafers made with honey. So not only was the good, good father providing them with the sustenance they needed, he, he actually made it taste pretty good, apparently. And God, now if you know the story of the ancient Israelites, right? God gave it to them every day for six days. Every day for six days, there was fresh manna on the ground. And here's the thing. You could not save the manna. If you tried to keep the manna so you didn't have to go out and get it the next day, the manna would go bad. It would rot. God would provide for his people just enough manna for that one day, except for the day before the Sabbath, when two days' worth of manna would appear, and it would last for the two days. Why? Because you weren't to gather on the day of the Sabbath. What is God doing? Why is he doing this? What is he teaching his people? 
You just sang about it. I, I, you know, they picked the songs. I didn't know they were going to sing about this. We all just, I trust in God, my Savior. I sing it better than I live it every day. Right? I'm going to teach you to trust me. I'll give you this food every day, but you can't keep it. And I want you not to work on Sunday, and I'm going to provide for you on that Sunday. Trust me. Now, if you and I went back in that day, and that law wasn't given, if, if manna didn't go bad, what would we do? We would hoard manna like crazy. How do I know? Because nothing ever changes, right? If we took people like you and I back to days like that, what, ha- what would happen with the manna if you could keep the manna? The bigger and the stronger would gather more and more, and the weaker and the marginalized would have less and less. It's the natural outcome of trusting in ourselves. You get that? But God was training his people. How? Through boundaries. I'm going to set up boundaries around your time. What was the boundary? You shall not consume your life with work. Why? Well, my guess was two reasons. The first is you're of limited capacity. God actually cited to the Israelites that he took one day off and rested in creation, and God is omnipotent. God didn't need the rest, but we're limited, and we do. So God is saying, trust me, believe me, I formed you, you need this. The reason, look, can I be honest, the reason that all of us are so tired, so cranky, so irritable, so burned out, is we do not take this command seriously. We think, I want to be like God. And what does that mean? I have no limits on my time or my energy. But I think more importantly, it was to, try to get his people to prove to his people he could be trusted. And then the, the fear was, but God, if we don't go out and work seven days a week, how are we going to bring in the crops? How are we going to tend to the cows? How are we going to shear the sheep, harvest the crop? How are we ever going to become this great nation you promised we would be? We can't stop working. The Egyptians are working. The Babylonians are working. You want us as a society to stop one day a week? We can't stop. We won't stop. We got to keep getting ahead. We got to be all that we can be. And today, literally thousands of years later, what has changed? Nothing. I can't stop. That would, be a, that would be showing weakness. I can't stop. I won't stop. How am I going to climb the ladder? How are my kids going to get that athletic scholarship? Do you know what kind of school my kid might not get into if we actually embrace this kind of thought process? This is for losers. Do you know the house I won't be able to afford if I stop working? The car that I'll never drive if I actually take this Sabbath thing seriously? Rest, there's no time for rest. But friends, isn't the deeper issue the heart issue? Right? Isn't what's at the root of our craziness, what's at the root of our calendar dysfunction, isn't it a trust issue? There's no time for trust. Because I got to make it happen in my yard. If I don't make it happen, it won't happen. And if others, I mean, this is a competitive world, God. If others are out there, right, and they're going seven days a week, then it's for me and my house, so too shall we. He did it with time. He did it with money. 
Again, God's trying to set up his people to be this holy nation, this one that would look different. It would be unusual. One where they would stand out so much, people would go, wow, look at those people. Look at their God. The other way that he, he chose to set up boundaries for his, his new community was with their money. From Leviticus, a tithe, a tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. This is not a talk about giving, so everybody, you know, let go of your wallets. How did, how did God, what, what is God doing? He's setting up a boundary on their stuff, on their money. It's called a tithe. You don't spend every moment on your, of your time on yourself. I'm going to put boundaries on your time. And you don't spend every dollar on yourself. I'm going to put boundaries on your dime. There's my rhyme for the day. This new society, unlike every other society, is going to have boundaries on, the, on what they do with their money. And God was going to train them to understand, just like he did with the manna, that every dollar that came in does not need to get consumed. A portion of that dollar just like with their time, a percentage of that dollar, sometimes one-tenth. The truth is, in Israel, oftentimes many tenths were to be used for God, towards God, or, or for others in the community that were less fortunate, the poor, the marginalized, the widow, the foreigner. But God, if I do that, if I do that, I mean, I may not have enough. That's why he would come along and say, yeah, I know. That's why I want you to give me the first fruit, so you really have to trust Give me the first fruit that comes in. But God, if I do that, God, do you know if I live that way? Do you know what that means? That means I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to live in a, in a smaller, a lesser neighborhood. And people are going to judge me that I, don't, that I live in this neighborhood, that, that I don't have the house that I actually could have, that I don't drive the car that I actually could drive. How am I going to gain their admiration or their approval? If I live in this neighborhood when I could live in that, to which God says, why don't you seek my neighborhood first? What? Why don't you trust me? Why do you trust them for all of those things, all of your, your value and your self-worth? Why don't you love me even more than you love them? And then I, I saw a point out this week, there was actually an ev even another, another boundary that God was setting up for this new people and this new nation. It was the boundary that, that had to do with where they would, where the edges of their little kingdoms came to, their fields. In a sense, how close to their fence could they harvest their fields? Here's what he said to them. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Has anybody gone apple picking yet this year? I used to go apple picking. Apple picking is a complete and utter waste of time. Here's why. Has anybody actually ever picked an apple off a tree? Because every time I've gone apple picking, there's no apples on the tree. They're all on the ground. It's a sucker's game, people. And so this is what a gleaning was. This is what would happen, right? When the crops got, uh, got, got ripe, they tended to fall to the ground. And what God was saying is to people is, anything that falls on the ground, I just want you to leave it there. In fact, he insists on it, Right? He says um, later on, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. To which you and I would go, why would I ever do that? Right? What's the point? That doesn't make any sense because don't you understand, God? I'm trying to control my area. And, and this is what I've done. I did the work. I took the risk. I made the investment. I sowed the field. I watered. I fertilized. 
I should harvest. It's mine. I, I did, I did, I did, I, 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 to which God, it's so interesting, this is how he finishes that command. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. He knows all our eyes, but he trumps them. I'm the Lord your God. I, I am creating boundaries for you. Do not go as far as you can go. Create some kind of zone in here where you're going to need some kind of cushion, some kind of boundary where you're going to need to trust me. By the way, those same boundaries, as we discussed, would wind up being good for others because then they too will find me and know me and begin to trust me. But we don't like boundaries. You want me to leave money on the table? We want to go right up to the edge. We want to spend right up to our level of income. And, and let's be honest, very few of us spend right up to our level of income. Do you know what most of us spend? Way over our level of income. We want to fill up every moment on our calendar. because, And I know, I feel this, man. If I'm sitting around doing nothing, I'm like, well, I must be a loser to have this kind of time. Right? Like, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta tell people I'm more busy. I, otherwise, I'm not important. Next month, the elders are asking me to spend some time on the concept of generosity. That God's people should be the most generous people on earth. And how our lack of boundaries in regards to our finances prevents us from being the most generous people on earth. And so we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But I want to finish today talking about our time, our calendars. Because here's the thing. Boundaries are ultimately about stewardship. We're stewards of the money, of the financial resources that God has blessed us with. We get this, right? I want you to understand. You are managers of money. You are not owners of money. One day, the scriptures say, you will be judged by God regarding how you stewarded or managed the resources, his resources, that he allowed you to manage on his behalf. But church, don't you understand? It is the exact, exact, exact same principle with time. We are stewards of our days. And yet, I think some of us, we get that with money we might not like it, we might not do anything about it, but I'm not sure we understand that principle when it comes to our calendars and our time. And here's the thing, I've been thinking about this a lot, I was talking to the elders about it this week. Here's the thing about time, I, I, I don't appreciate it until I really pause to reflect on it. You realize you can get more money. See, see, we get boundaries with our money because we perceive that money is limited. But let's be honest, money's not really all that limited. You could quit your job and go get a job that pays more. You could get a second job, bartend a night, a side hustle somehow. And heck, you could borrow money if you want more money. There are plenty of people that would love for you to do that. You can get more money. You can buy more money. But you can't get any more time. It's not for sale anywhere. And here's what I want you to know about this. The day will come for all of us when, and I've, I've watched this, I'll share it in a minute, where, where we would spend, and it will come for all of us, where we will spend lots and lots and lots of our money in order to just get a little bit more time. Amen. My dad, as some of you know, was seriously ill. He had a massive heart attack, and uh, this was two years ago. And they essentially came into us and they said, there's really only one thing, there's only one hope for him, it's gonna be a high-risk high stent procedure. If, if he lives through it, this will save him, but it'll be dicey. You know, your dad is an older guy and, and all of the reasons that it probably wasn't gonna work. 
but it was the one choice. And so they, uh, they, they said, you know, what do you want to do? And, uh, and of course, two things ran through my mind. The first is, you know, my dad has worked most of his life to, to build up a little nest egg. And my first thought was, what well, was my first thought? But I thought about it as, one day, as I was watching one day, hooked up to a million tubes, that all of what he spent his whole life trying to put away is all just getting burned up in the last couple of days here. It's just getting crushed by what's going on here. And then the, se- the second thing that I thought about, because they said, you know, you should say your goodbyes. And uh, I was the last one that was in a room with him, and I, I leaned over his bed, and I was whispering in his ear. And, and, you know, as I looked back on that moment, I thought to myself, I've, frid- I've put some money away too. I would give every cent I had in order that he might get just a little bit more time. Do you see how precious it is? And we just give it away without a thought. You get to be in your 20s once, right? And they're like gone before you know it. You only get to be in your 30s once. Well, unless, of course, you're me who's been claiming to be in and around his 30s for nearly 20 years now. But when your 30s are gone, they're gone. And we just keep treating time, even though it's more valuable than money, we keep treating it like it's unlimited. We know our finances are unlimited. We get that. And in fact, we're, we're forced to act accordingly with our money. But with our time, it's, it's like we live like it's unlimited and we treat it with no boundaries at all. And that's why in the very beginning, God says to his people, I need to establish for my people up front the importance of time. I'm mandating for my people a boundary, a Sabbath, a pause a break, a hard stop, regularly stop. And and I think this issue, right, of time is the one that you and I feel the most in terms of the chaos in our lives. Our lack of time, our overcommitments, our, our thorough exhaustion, our constant running from one thing to the next thing. My mom always says to me, because she, you know, she asks me to do things now and then, she's always like, I feel, she's like, you know, I hate to ask you because you're so busy. And when she says it, there's a little bit of pride in me. I am busy. You're too busy for your mom? Just never ends. We should have more time because we have more money, and yet we have no money and no time. And all of us are walking around exhausted and cranky. It's funny, this same Moses to whom God gave the command to Sabbath rest, Moses got it. And it's an understanding this concept of Sabbath rest and this concept of time stewardship. Moses, too, you know, Moses was busy. There's actually another story, I won't get into it, where he was so busy that some of the elders came to him and said, you got to stop being so busy. Moses gets it. It caused him to write what he did in Psalm 90. Check this out. He said, Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What is Moses doing? He's simply reminding us that God's timeline is so much bigger than our timeline. God has no beginning. He has no ending. His existence has always been. It goes as far that way to the beginning as it does this way to the future, which makes him think about God's omnipotence, God's timeline, and his power and our limits. So he says, you know, You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. 
Moses is saying, look, as much as we diet and exercise, we put our seatbelts on and we take all of our medication as hard as we want to control our lives, ourselves, and set the pattern for our own days. You can't. You can't. You're kidding yourself. God is ultimately in charge of when you're born and when you die and how long the span is in between. And regarding that span, here's what he says. He goes, a thousand years is in your sight or in your sight or like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Now, imagine God, right? For me, I'm in my 50s. Can I be honest with you? I can't believe I have to put the Christmas tree up again. I just took it down. Right? I mean, it was just literally Christmas five minutes ago. How long does summer last for a person my age? Seems like it's about a day and a half. And so what Moses is saying to God is, if I think that's what time is like, Imagine what the breath of my life is relative to God's. How quickly do you think my life goes by relative to God's time span? I mean, well, I don't have to think about it because Moses kind of sums it up, right? A thousand years is like a day. He goes on, he goes, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the grass of the morning. In the morning they, they spring up, by evening it's dry and withered. That's how short it is, Moses saying. It's, it might be 70 or 80 years. But then he goes on. He goes, this is super interesting. Stick with me through this, okay? Because he's coming to a conclusion that he wants you to get. He goes, we're consumed by your anger. We're terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All of our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, and yet the best of them are, are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. What he's writing about is what maybe you and I feel right now about watching the news and the broken world that we exist in, right? Most of the time we're living for ourselves, living like our own gods, controlling our own things, everything we're trying to control, ignoring the desires of God in a world that does so likewise. Until we eventually get to a place when you're 70 or 80 years old, where Solomon got to in Ecclesiastes, where he goes, oh, I don't even know anymore. Vanity, vanity, Solomon would say. It's all, it's all pointless. It's all worthless. What's, what's the point? Which would be a pretty depressing place if that's where Moses left us, but he doesn't. Here's what he concludes then. He goes, if only we knew the power of your anger, that your wrath is as great as the fear that you're due. In other words, what Moses is saying is a guy that understands both the Sabbath concept and the brevity of time, right? And how we're to steward it. He goes, if we only understood how great God is, how powerful and eternal he is, and how in comparison, how little we are, how short our lives are, if we got that, if we just for a moment could see it, we might give God the reverence he's due. Because most of the time we live like we are our own gods, or we are equal with God. We might use our short little lives for the purposes for which he's given them to us. We might steward them, not for our own use, right? That we be managers of the time we've been given. We get one shot at it. Moses is going, if you just understood who he was and who we are, we actually might put some boundaries around our time and use it for the purposes that we were created, which is why he concludes with this famous verse. This is the background of this verse. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. His prayer, his advice, I would argue to us is understand your life. Please understand the limits of your life. It is bounded. You get it with your money. 
You treasure, think about what you do with your money because you understand it's limited. You treasure it, you work for it, you fret over it, you hire people to help you manage it, to make the most of it. And Moses is going, what do you do with your time? What are you doing? Understand you don't have, if you want to be smart, understand this. Start to figure out how much time you have left. Because time is running out. Live like it is. And so what do we do? Well, it's not just an Old Testament theme. It's all over the New Testament. Paul told the church in Ephesus, he said, see then that you walk circumspectly. In other words, think about what you're doing. Could you please think about what you're doing, how you're spending your time? Not as fools, but uh, I like this. I thought, this was my note. Um, Not as fools, he says, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. The word in Greek, it means to buy back the time, to take it back, to have it, to ransom it away, to rescue it from loss. In other words, sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice to get back your time. It is more valuable than money. Don't be foolish, which, by the way, is what he says in the very next line. I was literally writing the sermon, and I'm like, God, he's telling us not to be foolish. And then I go to the next line. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You're stewards of time. Your life is not your own, the scriptures teach. You've been bought at a price. You were created with purpose. The Lord has a will for you. Understand what it is, to which we might go, well, what is it? He told the Ephesians in the first chapter, he said, he's made known to us the mercy, uh, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when time has reached her fulfillment, to bring unity, here's, here's the purpose for your days, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The Lord's will for what you're to do with the time, to steward the time he's been given for you, is to live out the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be a participant in the uniting, in the bringing of the kingdom of heaven to earth. Stop building, using all of your time to build your kingdom. Please examine your schedule and say, is any of it going to the purposes of the Lord? It's interesting, he, he would use the same concept of these same exact words, redeem the time when he wrote to the Colossians. He goes, walk in wisdom, again, be wise. Towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Count our days, Moses says, we'll walk in wisdom regarding to those who are far from God. What he's saying is, are we using the time that God is giving us? Are we buying it back? Are we rescuing it from the kingdoms of this world and stewarding it for the purposes of others? what Paul would later call the law of Christ. What Jesus would say is his singular command. Love one another as I have loved you. Use your life to love others into the kingdom to come. Stop using your life to love yourself in the kingdom that is. Boy, I just came up with that right there. That was pretty good. Paul, in the right, right in the verse before this, he goes, he, he asked them to pray for him that, that he might know how to proclaim the gospel as he should to those that were far from God. Friends, you're giving your life away. That's the truth. And the authors of the Bible, some of the smartest, holiest, wisest, experienced men who have ever lived, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are begging you and I not to give these short days away without purpose, without boundaries. And so as I close, I'm going to share with you a resource that I, I went down a rabbit hole on this one this week. 
I found just fascinating. Bonnie Ware is a, excuse me, Bronnie Ware is a palliative care nurse. She spends most of the days of her life with people in the final days of their lives. And she's been doing this for all of her life. And she wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of Dying. It's a pretty famous book. I'd encourage you to check it out. I, I actually watched a talk she gave on the Franklin Covey YouTube channel. By the way, what does Franklin Covey help us do? Manage our time. These, uh, she spends all, all of her time with these people in the last days of her life. And I wanted to share with you the five regrets because I think they bring some modern day context and some last moment clarity to those of us who are living like we're never going to die. And so again, worthy of a whole talk, I'm just gonna put them up here. You can take a picture of them if you want. I'd encourage you to go home and reflect on them. Here they are, I'll, I'll start with the, the, the bottom one, fifth one first. I wish I had let myself be happier. This has to do with how you view life. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? How are you, going to, how are you viewing what's going on in your life? The second was, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. She goes, this is an interesting one because it might not be as prominent today because of social media as with the people that she's dealing with. But most people at the end of their life look back and said, I let a lot of good relationships go. Third was, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had the ability to say what I really thought. Second, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I mean, we all know it, right? We've heard it a million times, but, but when, you hear, when you hear it like this, it brings some clarity to it. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And then finally, I wish I had had courage to live a life true to myself and not the life others expected of me. For Christians, I would add to that. I wish I had the courage to live the life God created me to live and not the life I or others wanted me to live. And you know what occurred to me about each of these regrets? Every single one of them? Do you know what could have prevented at one level or another each and every one of these regrets, especially the top two? I'll give you a hint. It starts with a B, it ends with an S, and it rhymes with foundries. As the band comes up, that word Paul used, redeemed, is so fascinating. Paul used that same word four times, twice what we're, regarding what we're to do with our time. And he used it two other times, the same word. Here's the other two times he used it. He used it to describe what Jesus has done for you, for me, for us. Check out what he wrote, same word. Christ, we are to redeem our time for others. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. All of our sin placed on him. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He would go on in the next chapter to say, when the, times, oh, excuse me, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back at a cost, to ransom back, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus redeemed at great cost, you and I, the price of his own body, his shed blood. He ransomed us. He rescued us from the law of sin and death. And he redeemed us, church. The word is just used these four times so that we might live and have life now abundantly and eternally. Your life is so important 
that Christ redeemed it at the highest possible cause. And why? So that you too might redeem your life, your time, and live out the great prayer and purpose of Jesus with our days to bring not our kingdom to this world, but his kingdom. Friends, redeem your time. Let's close in song.